This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast. I'm Deep Sampath, your host for today's episode. More than a year after COVID-19 first made the headlines, some of the most basic questions about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 or the coronavirus remain unanswered. We still don't have clear answers on how the first human being got infected. We don't know if this virus naturally evolved the proteins needed to infect humans or if those mutations were engineered in a lab. At the same time, these questions which ideally need scientific answers have become heavily politicized there are political attempts to blame the whole pandemic on china and while this may be unfair it doesn't automatically absolve china of all responsibility including the responsibility to cooperate fully towards an impartial probe into the origins of the pandemic until early 2021 the hypothesis that the pandemic originated in a leak at the wuhan institute of virology was dismissed as a crackpot theory but suddenly from this may onwards a series of in-depth pieces mostly from american publications have given the lab leak hypothesis new respectability how do we understand this sudden shift in narrative what are the various interests and agendas trying to influence the origins narrative and will we ever know for sure what exactly caused a pandemic that has dislocated modern life in so many profound ways these are all interesting questions and to answer them we have with us thomas abraham Thomas is an academic and former journalist who studies the role of the media in communicating risk and in infectious diseases. He is adjunct associate professor at the University of Hong Kong and author of 21st Century Plague: The Story of SARS. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here again. Uh Thomas, uh, let's start with a very uh, fundamental question. How important is it to know the actual origins uh, of a viral pandemic i mean how does it help to know it oh i think it it is important from the point of view of science it is important from the point of view of knowing how to prevent such events from occurring in the future of trying to understand what some of the danger signs are uh, what are some of the danger signals that the world of nature sends out often in advance uh before something like this happens where should we be looking for um these signals so all of this i mean obviously or it is an important part of the story of probably the biggest event that is going to hit any of us um you know for 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 many many decades and our lifetime perhaps having said which i want to take you up um go back to something that you said in your introduction about we don't know the origins of the virus there's so many unanswered questions and that's absolutely right but we don't have the answers to those questions for any global new disease outbreak if we go back to sars in 2003 uh, which we can think of as the ancestor or the great 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 grandfather of what we are experiencing today we still don't know we still haven't identified or scientists have not identified the progenitor virus or the virus that is close enough to have said 
this is the virus, this is how it started, or the point from which it moved from uh, animals to man, where it happened, or even where the first cases were. Um, similarly, with I mean, we can go back 100 years to the 1918 pandemic. We don't know where that originated. And fair enough, you could say in those days, science was, well, 100 years, more than 100 years, um, you know, further back. We didn't have the same techniques uh, then that we um, have today. But take another big uh, um, epidemic, and that was HIV AIDS. We still don't know the exact point or, or, or we have a rough idea of how it started, where the virus or similar viruses passed initially to man and so on and so forth. But there's a whole, whole area of uncertainty. And why is that? It is basically because these things take a lot of time. I mean, to find out something, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes money. And I think perhaps one reason is that once a huge event like this is over, people tend to move on. And, uh, you know, thank goodness this is over, let's move on. And I think that is unfortunate. Okay. Okay. So while one one must acknowledge that it is not easy uh, to pinpoint the origins uh, of a pandemic like this, at the same time, of course, one cannot, uh, as you said rightly, dismiss the need to do do this uh, in the first place, and and having said that, uh, there have been uh, there have been repeated occasions when, when people have tried to uh, pinpoint the origin of this, and until last year, the general opinion, starting from the WHO, has been to say that it is a naturally evolved uh, phenomenon, but suddenly uh, from early this year, uh, there has been a shift in uh, narrative in favor of uh, the lab leak hypothesis. How do we account for this shift in narrative? I think the general scientific consensus is definitely still in favor of natural origins. However, nobody has ruled out a lab leak. But how is it? And, and I think you really, really raised this issue. Um, it's a really interesting question. How did it happen that in the last two, three months, um, at least in the narrative in the public sphere, if you will, uh, the narrative among the chattering classes like us has suddenly shifted to the fact that this was uh, at best, it was either a leak from a lab um, or it was a deliberately engineered bioweapon. And as you have pointed out, I mean, this was something that was a that this theory had great currency during the Trump administration and it has acquired new life. Partly because it's an interesting story. We've had questions in a variety of different areas. One is, I mean, there have been um, uh, letters, not scientific papers, but we have had letters and groups of scientists um, questioning the sort of, uh, or more than questioning, what they're saying is don't dismiss this hypothesis so easily. Um, we've had a piece in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is not a scholarly journal, but still it's, um, it's, it's not a you know, daily newspaper either, also making the same point. And we've had a couple of virologists as well also making this point saying don't dismiss the lab leak. 
right? And so keep all your hypotheses up there. Uh, don't diminish one. The reason is why is this? Because I think in terms of human beings, I think we find this a lot, this story a lot more interesting, right? Um, it's got everything that you would expect. It also fits into our notions of what happens in China, right? Um, you've got this authoritarian state. You've got the PLA, Tiananmen Square. See what they did there. Um, China on its way to world dominance. And why? obviously, they would do a bioweapon. Why wouldn't they do this? And even if it was an honest mistake, you think they would own up to it? No. So, you know, it fits into a lot of what... We our own preconceived notions of what is happening in China today. And so it's an easy story to write. It is an easy story for us to read and make sense of. And there are sources, I mean, the U.S. Intelligence Committee, uh, um, uh, community, for example, who have said that, well, this is a hypothesis. It, it definitely could have happened. And then the most interesting aspect of the story, which really gives it so much salience, I think, is the fact that a lot of this is done by non-mainstream scientists, intelligent amateurs, many of them, who have been going through documentation. They have downloaded things from websites, from the you know from the from labs. They have done homemade, done homemade translation. They have picked up all sorts of interesting facts. And so you also have this Robin Hood narrative. You know, the citizen, ordinary people sort of fighting back against big media and big government and WHO, right? And um, really telling the story the way it is. So you've got all of these interesting uh these reasons, I think, why this is a really interesting narrative. And this is a narrative that is going to take, uh, you know, that has a lot of salience. Um, the quality of the narrative, of course, is something else. And that is a, an entirely different question. Okay, so you're saying that uh, basically this is a very attractive story in the first place. And uh, human beings being uh, the kind of creatures they are, they will uh, be tempted to gravitate towards a great story that also has the benefit of uh, taking all the right preconceptions we might have about uh, the Robin Hood aspect of the story and, and what an authoritarian state like China uh, would do and so on. So, but this uh, then, are you then uh, uh, interrogating the kind of uh, 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 content that has been put out from this whole uh, group that calls itself uh, a drastic or decentralized radical autonomous search team investigating COVID-19, D-R-A-S-T-I-C. And they have come up with like huge, uh, uh, huge amounts of very fact, factually uh, fact-seeming kind of content uh, based on so many uh, papers and documents that they have referred to. Uh, they, on the one hand, they seem very convincing to a layperson, but at the same time, many of them have come from U.S. government anonymous sources. And people like, you know, ordinary people are not in a position to go and validate them or verify them on their own. I mean, I can't go and compare two genetic sequences to see, you know, which virus is up to, up to what, where it came from and so on. So how do we assess what has come out in the last two, three months in favor of the lab leak hypothesis? Okay, so I don't think not, none of what uh, has come out so far really is in favor of the lab leak hypothesis. And it really goes back to this. All it said, and if we draw anything from it, it, it is that do not discount the lab leak 
hypothesis. Then let's look at some of these issues. Um, I think one or one of the big sort of these big ticket findings, if you will, these sort of explosive findings. Uh, one, of course, um, refers to the Mojiang mine episode, right? And right, right. basically this states that, uh, you know, a group of miners felt ill, you know, in, in this um, mine. It's an old disused copper mine in uh, Yunnan province. And um, researchers went. Um, they got the virus from this. And this is 2012. And they've cultured it. And they've worked on this. And then they have unleashed it um, onto the world. Now, I think we have... Um, Wuhan WIV, first of all, is, I mean, they have been publishing from the last six years in scientific journals, and all of this is openly available on the um, sequences, on the viruses they've managed to get out of this mine shaft or this cave. Um, and it's useful to know that um, these, um, you know, all this work really started as part of the attempt to find some sort of virus which might have caused SARS in 2003. And I think in 2005, they identified a reasonable sort of one sort of distant ancestor of stars. So they haven't found that yet. Um, all of the viruses that they have found, including RATG13, uh, which is the sort of supposed to be the smoking gun. Um, I mean, those sequences are up on global uh, sort of databases, right? Then the debate becomes, did these miners die of COVID, right? COVID-19, that's part of the thing. Did they die of something else? Now, the papers, and this is in Nature, uh, what uh, Shizeng Li and the others at WIB have uh, sort of said in a paper in Nature is that they could not find any common virus out of samples from these miners, right? Uh, they checked for Ebola, they checked for Nipah, and they checked for SARS itself. And this is in 2012. They couldn't isolate anything. Subsequently, after that, they went back to the cave from 2012 until about 2015-16, collecting samples. And it was then that they collected sort of, I think, 15 or 16, not all samples, but at least they managed to isolate pretty much the entire genome of 14, 15 different SARS-like, SARS-related coronaviruses. And some of these were really similar to the original SARS in terms of their spike proteins. Others had uh, similarities in terms of other their envelope protein, for example. Um, and all of this suggested that the enormous colony of bats that were living in this cave, and I'm sure there are other caves as well. This was one cave that was actually sampled, was in fact a mixing bowl for coronaviruses, right? Because they were exchanging, bat A would be infected with one type, bat B would be infected with another, bat A and B would sort of, and bat C would be co-infected with two kinds of coronaviruses, both A and B, right? And maybe produce a third one in the fullness of time. So that is what, so in terms of this Mojang mine um, 
sort of this smoking gun. I, to be honest, maybe I'm missing some huge, there's some huge thing that I'm missing, but just reading all the published data that there is so far, going back from 2015 and 16, I'm not quite sure the point that they are getting at. Oh, the other thing, of course, is that they have changed the name of this virus. Um, and initially it was, I think, called 4409. And then suddenly they said 4409 is RATG13, and they renamed it. Once more, um, virologists have a pretty good reason. And the, the people who renamed it, the WIV team, have a reason. They say we're adopting a, a standard formulation. RA is for the type of bat, rhinoculus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, horseshoe bat. Uh, TG is Tongwan, the nearest town, and 13 is the year of sampling, right? And so from now on, we're just, instead of giving just numbers, we are adopting a slightly easier form of, uh, of um, nomenclature, if you will. So once more, I don't see what that smoking gun is. Actually, if you could point me to some of the other, you know, sort of uh, theories, then I could deal with them. This is the, off the top of my head. This is the first thing that came to me. See, one of the things that uh, they keep coming up with is a number of uh, lies which have been ostensibly, you know, seemingly uh, put out by Xi, uh, Xi Zhengli, right? So, according to this, uh, some of these articles which have come out uh, in these American publications, citing drastic and also the writer, reporter himself, herself, is that uh, she said that these miners did not die of uh, corona kind of, uh, COVID kind of symptoms, mm. but they had a fungal infection. Mm. That is, that later on proved out, proved to be a lie. Then they said we were not working on SARS-CO2 kind of coronaviruses in, in WRV, but that also turned out to be a lie because they were working on it. And apparently nobody was working on gain-of-function uh, research and Apparently, it turned out they were working on it. Yeah. So, these are the kinds of uh, frames of falsehoods which they have put out. I don't know if, if, if many of these, if they come across as falsehoods because the data, the fact that they were already available in the public domain is not known to the public. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. What do you make of these okay. uh, lies? So, let's so go far. back. back uh, Gain of function studies, they have been published, right? Um, okay. So, they've published this thing even and uh, it... it and they started, so let's understand what they mean. What is gain of function, first of all? It might be useful to, to actually quickly look at that. Now, this is a study that basically virologists all over the world do um, on different kinds of viruses. And the point really is, in a sense, to see under what conditions will this virus, can this virus become more transmissible? Suppose you have a potentially dangerous virus. Um, one example was H5N1 bird flu. Um, remember at, at about 10 years ago, that was the big, you know, people saw that right. as the big threat. Right. And the question really was, will this become more transmissible so that it, you know, transmits more readily amongst human beings. So there were labs, labs in the Netherlands, for example, one big lab, which was working and trying to understand what conditions or how will this, you know, what are the changes that are required to, um, you know, to make this more transmissible. And if we know those changes, then we can look for those changes, right? Or we can sort of raise the alarm saying that, you know, you just need this tiny, uh, tweak here and suddenly you've got, you know, this much more transmissible virus. So labs, virologists, this is part of the thing I think that makes their life interesting, right? Uh, not all viral, but their labs all over, they work on gain of function. So she's in Lee, what 
uh, her lab was doing was trying to understand can bat coronaviruses infect or human um, cell receptors. Now, coronaviruses, SARS coronaviruses infected a receptor in our lungs or not lungs throughout our body called ACE2, right? And so what her team was trying to do is can bat coronaviruses directly infect human ACE2, right? Um, so um, in the case of SARS itself, this came through animal intermediaries. But the question is, can you have a direct bat to human infection, right? And so they start doing studies on this. What kind of studies do they do? Uh, one of the things they were doing, and all of this is publicly available knowledge. It's even in the WHO report. So they had, um, you, you could have, mice can be genetically engineered to produce a whole bunch of human-like receptors, right? So you had lab mice. That's the most recent thing they were doing. We have been um, genetically engineered to produce human AC2 receptors, right, in their lungs and respiratory passages. So they were trying to infect these um, mice with um, bat coronaviruses. And not just bat, it's not entire bat coronaviruses, uh, but really they would take the part of one coronavirus and stick, um, you know, the, the body, if you will, of one coronavirus and then stick on spike proteins from another virus. So, and usually these viruses will not, they're not capable of independent survival, but this is just to see if the spikes will fit and infect a human AC2 um, receptor. So this kind of stuff has been going on since 2016-2017. No, Thomas, just one second. Mm -hmm. Let me stop you there. So from a layman's perspective, right. what you have just described is huh. a kind of a research yeah. where you are trying to, where you, what you have done is you have basically uh, done genetic engineering to put humanized lung cells into a mouse. It's and then you have also receptors. Uh, yeah. yeah, and then you have also uh, modified an existing coronavirus by sticking some new uh, spike proteins which it did not originally have. Yeah. So creating a new creature basically to see whether it can infect human beings. Yeah. Is that right? That's now why would why would any sane person want to try something like this given the potential this is, this is what's, uh, risks yeah, involved? You're, abs you're absolutely right. And this is a legitimate thing. Should gain-of-function research be banned? This erupted in 2004-2005 over H5N1, but this is a global practice. Now, I agree. Now, one thing, you know, the, the, the virus that is being engineered cannot replicate by itself, right? And normally these are meant to be non-replicating. They just, so if, if this kind of a virus were to leak from a lab, uh, nothing would happen? Is that it should not happen. Right. And I think one of the interesting things from this is what you have pointed out to, and there needs to be a wider public discussion of gain of function research. What are the benefits and what are the risks? And so far, this has been within the scientific community. Um, you know, a lot of the some of the Wuhan Virological Institute work was actually funded by the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Right. So, I mean, this is a global practice. Um, and they did. But wasn't uh, wasn't gain of function research banned by Obama in 2014? And they found some kind of a backdoor way of continuing to do it. Yeah, no, it wasn't backdoor. The NIH continued this because. 
they felt that the research that was happening in Wuhan did not fall under this. So once more, they, it was not a backdoor way. This is the US NIH which continued this. Um, so I think these, in fact, the questions you're asking are really interesting because yes, there is a kernel of truth to it, but the way that it has been presented is not entirely accurate, right? And that, and so in a, in a sense, this is really what um, all the material that has come out um, questioning this has got some truth in it, but it doesn't have the entire truth. So, and, and which is why, in a sense, it looks interesting. But your bigger point is really, really relevant because I think you do need proper public discussion on gain-of-function research. Uh, what are the benefits? The benefits is if this is supposed to help you or virologists and sort of early warning systems in nature or you know, scientific early warning systems to look for danger signs early. Right. So if you see something like this in nature, which is similar to, you know, we know that this is capable of infecting human beings because we did these mouse studies. We should be really careful. So that is the plus point. The negative thing is everything that you point out, the danger, you know, of lab leaks, you're creating things um, which perhaps you shouldn't be. And we really need much, much more um, public discussion on this, what are the boundaries, what are the limits, and so on and so forth. So I think one good thing that I hope will come out of, of, of all these theories is um, some deeper discussion of gain-of-function research. But so far, none of what I've seen in, 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 in media reports really has um, you know, contributed to anything, uh, any uh, deeper discussion of what is really a legitimate su uh, subject for discussion. Okay, Thomas, you're, you're still calling it a legitimate subject of uh, of research and so on. Let me ask you something. Is is, is it, how do we differentiate between uh, what is uh, being told to us is a gain-of-function research from a bioweapons research? That's true. I mean, it's, it's really is, is, is a method and gain-of-function research can lead to a bioweapon, right? That's one of the directions this can lead in the same way that splitting uh, the atom led to the atom bomb, right? So that means uh, mm. a, a, any given state can say, I'm doing gain-of-function research while they're actually doing bioweapons. Yeah, research, right? if somebody wants to do bioweapons, I mean, you would, you would begin with gain-of-function studies and, um, and then you would, so you need global, uh, you know, sort of, a, you already do have um, global legal conventions Chemical and bio, there's the Chemical and Biological Weapons Treaty, which does have infection, I mean, inspection uh, um, sort of um, functions as well, or, or, or provisions to inspect, which is supposedly banned a lot of this, but this still happens under different guises. I mean, H5N1 or even what is happening in Wuhan is seen as potentially, you know, it, it, this is basically to understand science. And so where does science end and gain of function begin or when does this is another question that we need to um, answer but you know in labs all over the world it's important to understand that virologists are working on viruses to see can they under what conditions will they become more dangerous right and part of this could you know some of this could leak off to, to, into into uh, bioterrorism in the same way that nuclear research can lead to all sorts of other things, both nuclear power on the one hand, plus as well as awful weapons on the other. So I think these are some 
of the issues that we really share. I mean, these are legitimate questions for debate. Uh, I didn't say that the research was legitimate, but this is a legitimate question for public discussion and public understanding and public um, debate. And one of the questions we should really ask is from, have, you know, all the gain-of-function research that has happened so far, has it really prevented any outbreaks? We don't know. But right. I think these are things that we should be asking. Right. One other question uh, which has been uh, brought up by this drastic uh, group and related media reports is about uh, biosafety of these uh, various mm-hmm. labs. And this, this WIB Wuhan Institute of Virology, for instance, is supposed to be a BS4 a level uh, uh, security, which is the highest, I suppose, for uh, virology uh, labs. Mm-hmm. And they have said that uh, it's not, I mean, they have been operating under budget constraints and what the kind of uh, kind of provisions that needed to be uh, introduced, uh, institutionalized in a BS4 kind of a lab was not really there. Uh, and therefore, the possibility of a leak uh, cannot be ruled out. That's one of the things mm-hmm. which has uh, come out. Like, how would you understand? Could well be. I mean, none of us have, uh, you know, really sort of inspected these labs. I have no idea. I wouldn't even know how to inspect the lab. What I do know is that started functioning in 2018, 2017. It's basically built with uh, French collaboration. Um, and it was the French who really built this and put all the systems in place and so on and so forth. So over the last two years, whether they've actually been maintaining it or whether, you know, it's completely gone to seed. Um, I would think budget constraints is not an issue in China. And especially for big sort of right. prestigious, I would discount that. So I, I wouldn't know how to, to actually answer that because I haven't really been there or talked to anybody there Um and so maybe it is, it's possible, maybe it's not, but we don't know. We just have to take the words of those who say that it is not. Either we accept that or we don't accept that. Um, yeah, but then the WHO group that went there, even though they did not do a lab audit, probably should have picked up on something had it been there. Um, but yeah. Right, right. And uh, one of the narrative threads in this uh, entire uh, lab leak hypothesis, which has been uh, mainstreamed by recent media reports, is that uh, one section of the U.S. government repeatedly tried to shut down uh, investigations into the origins of COVID-19, ostensibly because they wanted to hide the fact that U.S. government funds had gone into uh, funding this research, uh, coronavirus research, that too in uh, China. So is it, I mean, how common or unremarkable is it that the U.S. and Chinese were working together on research that could easily have been uh, a stepping stone to bioweapons? Isn't it a bit like India and Pakistan working together on bioweapons research? I mean, is it it really expected? Yeah, if they're working on bioweapons research, I think it is very unexpected. If they're working on studies on coronavirus infectivity, it is not unremarkable at all. Now, the list of grants that the National Institute of Health gives is why it's openly available on their website. So it shouldn't come. I mean, if anybody does some basic research, you will you mean you will get a picture. Similarly, a lot of it comes from Eco Alliance, that a, a, a New York-based um, research, private, semi-private uh, NGO-like research institute, which also has NIH money, which it funds to different people, including the Wuhan uh, Institute. But all of this are on the public record. I mean, the, and these are pub, these are public institutions giving public 
money out. So both in terms of audits, congressional hearings, and plus what is on their website, um, all of this is already there. Now, I think one thing you need to do is really make a distinction between bioweapons, right, which is a virus that has been weaponized to cause mass destruction, um, and gain-of-function research. One leads to the other, but there's a big difference. I mean, it's the same way as saying that the, the progenitor virus of the SARS-CoV-2, this RATG, was 96% homologous, which is about 20, 30, 40 years in evolutionary distance, right? Similarly, right. between gain-of-function research and a bioweapon, that is a biological entity or, or a bi- something biological that can be used as a weapon, a weapon of war, right? Which is effective, kills or incap- incapacitates large numbers of people almost immediately, right? That is a huge, huge leap. And uh, to be honest, the re- one reason th- things haven't happened is they're not very efficient. I mean, if you wanted to destroy and start war with an enemy, um, as a state, you would much rather, in your, your conventional weapons are much better, right? Or even things like terrorism, you know, fueling insurgency, all of these are much more effective than sitting and cooking up a virus and distributing it, right? And especially a virus that actually affected your own city first and made you look terrible globally and, you know, killed people in your own country, right? Shut down your economy, um, and you can say this is actually a bioweapon which leaked and so it wasn't meant to go that way. And we can keep hypothesizing. But I don't think, I mean, it is not plausible because it's not an efficient way of doing anything. And if you did want to make a bioweapon, you would first start with the SARS coronavirus, which you know has got some ability to cause serious disease and so on and so forth, right? And then you'd work on that and try and make it more transmissible. But that was not what SARS-CoV-2 was. It was a, I mean, there was a big evolutionary distance between uh, the SARS virus of last year and the SARS virus of 2002. And so it's not as though somebody started off with that. I mean, the logical thing would have been to start with that, right? And make that more efficient rather than trying to sort of, uh, you know, cook up something from scratch. That is not happening. So for all of these reasons, I, I would tend to discount the bioweapon hypothesis unless you have strong evidence to the contrary, right? The lab leak hypothesis is more plausible because you do have leaks from labs. Um, 2004, you had leaks of SARS um, coronavirus from labs, one in Beijing, one in Singapore, and one in Taiwan. And this is from the end 2003 to 2004. So it has happened before, though several decades ago. Um, so that is more plausible, I think, than the bioweapons thing. Uh, right. Is it, uh, I mean, you, you've, you've sort of tried, maintained from the beginning that, uh, that in terms of the various uh, uh, information and reports which have come out about the lab leak hypothesis, a lot of them contain a kernel of truth, but they are not the entire truth. So, uh, I, one of the things which has come out more recently is that uh, the, 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 one of the main stories uh, putting forward the lab leak hypothesis and blaming the Chinese was broken by the same journal- journalist who uh, broke the lies about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which led to the subsequent uh, Gulf War. And also, he had also 
put out another story which which was later on retracted about masked men in ukraine uh, being russian soldiers and so on so is it isn't isn't it very strange that uh, this entire uh, momentum for this lab leak hypothesis is coming from a journalist who has a track record of putting out us government plans um i don't know i mean we don't actually need to go into you know to 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 evaluate the quality of a story i mean we can actually abstract from whoever does the story and just look at the quality of the evidence and i think that probably is the best way to assess it you know rather than saying this person has done this before but really look at the quality of the evidence and in all of these cases it's been made quite clear that this is you know us intelligence sources have said this and i think every news serious news report that has come out you know whether it's in in, in there was one in vanity fair i think fairly recently um the thrust of what they're all saying is that don't dismiss the lab leak hypothesis and that you've got all these intelligence sources then you've got drastic all of which is sort of pointing towards the lab leak hypothesis so these are things that need to be investigated and i would agree uh, with that entirely uh, part of it a lot of it is coming from the us maybe us government sources and also us journalists are much more enterprising right um and it be hard to see somebody from a mainstream media organization here actually digging into these things you know finding getting the paperwork and sort of you know spending 2 3 months uh looking at chinese documents and doing that sort of deep investigative uh, work uh, that would be required than talking to sources globally and trying to make sense of all of this so um there are very few i mean news organizations there are very few news organizations globally that are interested or have the resources to do this many of this, them happen to be uh, in the united states and which is why this also gives space for this new form of 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 information gathering and dissemination and that is groups like drastic which are basically networks of people uh, like minded thinking in a like minded way who 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 gather information throw it into the pot right um and uh try and make sense of all of these things so um you have two ways of working now and the, my problem with drastic and so on is that there is no real sort of skepticism of somebody saying assume this is not true and one thing that any good news organization has somebody who's doing an investigative work is to have a team a and a team b so team a produces the story and the role of team b is to tear it apart right and 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 it's from that sort of tension that you really get solid investigative journalism now that does not happen in uh, you know with sort of loose collective like drastic it's really for the public to do this work and good news organizations still work in this way though i don't know to what extent uh, some of the stories that are appearing have really gone through uh, this process of skeptical editing um, which i think is really um, essential right uh, the skeptical editing is of course an essential part of uh, trying to make sense of this whole uh, whole issue so lastly uh, thomas uh, just to wind up uh, given that this uh, theory as you pointed out uh, about uh, lab leak origin of covid-19 is is going to remain in the realm of plausibility uh, without ever being resolved one way or another will will we ever be able to tell clearly uh, how the covid-19 pandemic came about and whether this is a natural virus or a genetically engineered virus will we ever get to know an answer to this 
I don't think we'll ever get to have a definitive answer to this. Um, it's worth knowing, you know, even during 2002, 2003, the first theory that was, uh, was that uh, SARS itself was a bioweapon and that the PLA had produced this, right? Um, and we can't disprove that either. I mean, you can find distant ancestors, you can find closer ancestors, but the actual virus itself, was it created in the lab? It's like one of these yes and no things. Um, it's it, it, it's really, it's going, it, it's almost like, I mean, there's certain things I think which will always be unknowable unless you have a clear record. And if this is a bioweapon, or if there is a, la- a leak in a lab, if there's a bioweapon, for example, I mean, you need to get the definitive sort of logs from that lab. And you need to get samples and the entire process uh, by which you started with virus A and ended up with uh, SARS-CoV-2. I don't think we will ever get that um, if it exists. Um, similarly, if it's natural origins, I'm not sure we'll ever find the exact way by which perhaps bat viruses in Yunnan or maybe even Southeast Asia made their way first to Guangzhou, right, and caused SARS uh, in 2003 and later to Wuhan. Um, because, you know, the, our understanding of nature and the viral world is, is really, it is so minuscule. What we know is literally the equivalent of one atom's worth of knowledge in an entire universe of, you know, of events going on. Because these are events that are random, they are, you know, uh, and, and really we don't know the laws that govern many of these things. Um, so science... Thomas, one, one, uh, I wanted your reaction to one aspect which I forgot to ask you earlier, mm-hmm. which is the whole uh, official investigation carried out by WHO uh, on this question, and which concluded uh, that uh, a natural origin was, within quotes, likely to very likely, and a laboratory accident, mm. extremely unlikely. And, and what I found very bizarre is that uh, the very terms of reference which had been prepared for this investigation had already ruled out a lab leak possibility, number one. And number two, every member of this delegation which went to China was uh, vetted by the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So given these two factors, uh, this WHO report, which is being cited by many to disprove the lab leak hypothesis, how credible is it? I think that's a good question. Now, point number one, uh, the, the terms of reference ruled out lab leak, and that is not true at all. The terms of reference were to investigate the origins of this virus, right? And the, the, the terms of reference, there's a three or four page document on the terms of reference, and which repeatedly says to follow every lead until you get there. Doesn't it say zoonotic origin specifically? No, no, not at all. It is to look at the origin. There's a separate uh, three or four page document on the terms of reference. And that these terms of reference were actually before even the teams were formed. Point to the vetting. Yes, they were all vetted. So in um, one thing, I think, you know, we're doing a disservice really to those team members as well. So let's look at the lead. There were three groups that were found. One was the animal health, um, you know, the animal market part of it. Number two was molecular epidemiology, which is how did this, you know, virus actually evolve. And the third was the epidemiology. How did it spread? Right. And two of them, these are 
distinguished people. One is uh, a Dutch woman who is a professor at Erasmus University. The other is a Danish woman who is head of a leading laboratory in Denmark. And the third is Peter Daszak, who was head of this EcoHealth Alliance. And a lot has been made of his involvement in this because he was a funder and he's worked very closely with WIB. But then he was just head of one subgroup, and that was really looking at animal markets. He was not the leader of the team. Um, and plus, there are a whole bunch of international scientists, right? And so you need to also then assume that all of these people were in on this conspiracy. And these are people who give interviews, they are outspoken, they're not under any gag rule. And if anything, they're paid by their respective countries. They owe nothing to China, right? So I think it's important to bear that in mind um, as well. And I think I've missed, sorry, one of your questions, I think I was sidetracked on. So one was really on the terms of reference. The other was, um, I think, on, on the people there, perhaps. And I think you had a third uh, point, which uh, unfortunately slips my mind. I think uh, it was, I think it was basically these two uh, points only. And, and the fact that uh, both these points were brought out by this a drastic group related media report. So mm -hmm. I've taken it from them. And the third one was, of course, they really couldn't go to that Mojang mine and you know, do their investigation. True. They were uh, prevented from going there and so on and so forth. True. So why would uh, China want to do that? Journalists were prevented from going. I don't think the group itself um, wanted to go to the mine and get into Batuano and Batdang. Journalists, there was a BBC <laughs> team and I think Western journalist teams were stopped um, and right. from entering the mine. But had they gone there, I'm not quite sure what they would have found except bats and Batuano. Um, and so, <laughs> right. I mean, the point is all of these drastic things, I mean, you can, you can take little facts and you can present them in any way depending on what you think is right. Right. And what you can think the reason of. And the point I want to finish with is all of these hypotheses are still on the table. Right. None of them have been excluded. None of them have been proved. Uh, but the evidence that has been presented for the lab leak theory is really weak. Um, and, and, you know, you really need to come up with something better. Or the bioweapon theory or the conspiracy theory is pretty weak. Um, and it's all available. And the WH, the annex to the WHO report also has um, quite a detailed uh, account of Xi Zhengli's response to these questions and questions to what kind of research were you doing and so on. Now, you can say she was lying outright. And that, to that, there really is no um, answer, except that she's a respected scientist who collaborates with scientists from all over the world, as does her lab. And she's part of a global network of knowledge. And if you think, if she could be completely dishonest, but then nobody who's been working for her, you know, on all these top names, virologists who've been working with her for decades, none of them somehow seems to have cottoned on to this fact, if it is in fact true. And so I would actually uh, treat that with a pinch of salt, because this is not what her peers are saying. You know, those who should know her West and her Western peers, since uh, what Western scientists say seem to have a lot more weight. Uh, so her American peers, her European peers, her French peers, where she studied and trained and got her PhD and who helped her to set up this, um, uh, you know, this uh, coronavirus uh, BSL-4 lab uh, three years ago. None of them are saying this. So I would like to, you know, you need to put that into the debate as well. Right. 
Right. So the bottom line is that uh, this entire uh, shift in narrative uh, doesn't really show us any new evidence that would uh, tilt the scales in favor of the lab leak hypothesis, but it does do other things, which is uh, number one, uh, it says, it suggests that we cannot outright dismiss a lab leak possibility. And number two, it, uh, it, it sort of points towards the need to debate larger questions such as uh, uh, gain of function research and so on and so forth. Uh, Thomas, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much Thank for you. sharing your insights. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.